I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. If we haven't met each other, I'm Paul Gilbert, the lead pastor. Even if we have met each other, I'm still Pastor Paul, the lead pastor. Okay. Anyway, Genesis 9, we're preaching through the book of Genesis. We are almost 20% of the way through, technically 17.9% of the way through. And uh, that's what we do here at Forks. We preach through books, passages um, of God's Word. We think it's His Word to us. As you're flipping to, to Genesis 9, because it's September, it's the onset of the football season, such as it is, it's always a good time to be thinking about, for me, my favorite football movies. You know, there's, the, of course, The Blind Side, Invincible, Friday Night Lights, my personal favorite, Remember the Titans. Remember, I did not mention the highly overrated Rudy. Okay, so sorry, Irish fans, for that. But a lot of these movies, let's be honest, these sports movies are about these underdogs that face insurmountable obstacles. And we love seeing them get these second chances and new starts to to achieve great things. And Genesis 9 has that kind of feel. Noah is the lone survivor. He and seven others. They have have withstood what no one else on earth withstood, and that is the, the deluge of the flood. They worked and built this ark for 120 years, if you can imagine. And here they come walking out of the ark, and you can imagine how Noah must be feeling, right? The earth kind of has that new car smell. Everything's been cleansed. All the riffraff is gone. All the people that had negative things, all the haters, they are, they're out of the way. And you can imagine Noah saying, you know, me and my seven amigos, my, my hombres, we are, we're ready to get serious with things with the Lord. All the rest of mankind fell away. They were destroyed. But we have serious spiritual business to do. And now we have an opportunity to do it. Everything, any obstacle that we could imagine has been sort of pushed out of the way. And here in Genesis 9, we get our first glimpse of the post-flood family of Noah. And what we're going to realize, it just doesn't work out that way. Not the way Noah thought it would. So we're going to read um, verses 18 through 29 this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand, um, if you can, if you're willing, able, as we read this passage together. And we're going to put it on the screen behind us if you, if you need that. So it says, verse 18, the sons of Noah went forth from the ark where Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Let's pray. 
Lord, once again, we come to a text that can seem pretty ancient, pretty remote, pretty obscure. But Lord, that's just because we don't have the eyes to see that only your Holy Spirit can provide. Lord, we believe this is your word. This is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And we believe that you have something to say to us now thousands of years later from your word. So Lord, give us grace, wisdom, mercy as we come before your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You may take a seat. Well, if you're wondering what in the world we're going to do with this passage, all I have to say is I'm open to ideas, okay? <laughs> I, I've, I've actually spent the, the week thinking the same thing. If nothing else, let's be honest, Noah's family puts the fun in dysfunction, don't they? I mean, this is a good one. No, seriously, one of the things I love about the Bible I think it's unique among all other spiritual books, religious books, and religions, is that it just doesn't spin human behavior. There is no editorial gloss on the behavior of the people of God. There's no reframing of people's behavior to put it in the best possible light. Fallen humanity is on full and total display. You know, oftentimes in other religions, Great care and pain is taken to sort of hide the faults of its chief leaders, lest these sort of expose or undermine the religion. And you know what? Christianity is the exact opposite. Christianity goes to great pains to show just how broken, sinful, and fallen humanity and God's people really are. And the reason that the Scripture does this is because ultimately the Bible is not fundamentally or first about you and me. It's about God. And as we teach our children in in Sunday school class, the hero of every story is God. And the most important things that we can learn from this story this morning are not just the things about us, as important as those are, but it's going to be the things that we learn about God himself. So here we're going to have Noah's family being confronted with its fallenness. And I think what we learn about his family, what we learn about God, will help us to understand how to respond to God in our brokenness, in our fallenness. And so we've entitled this one, Sobering Lessons on Sin. And you're probably thinking, way to go, Pastor Paul, way to bring, way, way to bring the funk on the, on the first Sunday in September. But no. I really, really believe God is going to meet us in this text. So I've got four things, okay? Four, four lessons on sin that I think are really, really important if you are one who aspires to know God and walk with him. Okay, number one is this. The flood, and this should be painfully obvious, the flood hasn't fixed anything. Now look at verse, verses 18 through 19. The flood hasn't fixed anything. See, God has commanded Noah and his sons to journey forth, to spread across the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. And if that sounds familiar, it is. It's just a recapitulation of what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. The same command was given to Adam and Eve. And we know from chapter 10, we're going to look at here in a moment, that in fact, this is exactly what happens. The whole earth is populated through these three sons. And as we see from the genealogy of nations in chapter 10, all of us, all of humanity in world history are in some way descended from these three. But what's interesting is what Moses puts in 
parentheses, and it might be in parentheses in your Bible in in verse 18. He sort of inserts this note, and it says this, Ham was the father of Canaan. Now we have to ask, why in the world would, 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 would Moses, who's writing this now hundreds, thousands of years later, make a note like that right here? Well, let's remember the context that, Mo, that Moses is writing. Remember, he's giving Genesis, writing Genesis to the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. They are getting ready to go into the promised land, and God has given them a command. Or what was it? They are to kick out, expel, um, destroy the people who are already living there. This land does not belong to them. It lives, it belongs to God's people. And what were the name of these people? The Canaanites. See, if you're Israel, you are wondering probably like, what in the world do the Canaanites do? Okay, what, what's, what's going on? Who are they? Why is God calling us to do this? And this passage sort of gives us some of the backdrop to who these people were. Now, if you turn over to chapter 10, just a few verses ahead, this branch of humanity, the, the Hamite, so to speak, represent a generation of people who are evil, wicked, and living apart from God. Now, if you sort of scan through the text here, and I know there's a number of you who are, who are just thinking you're going to be drafted next week to read chapter 10. We won't do that to you. But, but, some of the, but when you look over this list under the descendants of Ham, it is like the FBI's most wanted, right? If you're, if you're a person in Israel. Think about all the arch enemies of Israel that are represented as a part of the line of Ham. There's Egypt. See, the Israelites reading that, they had just spent 400 years in Egypt. There's Babel. There's Assyria. Evil, wicked Nineveh. The Philistines, the blasted Philistines. Sodom and Gomorrah, undoubtedly that tale would have reached the ears of Israel long before now. These are all symbols of great wickedness, all flowing from this one line, the line of Cain. And so it should again be painfully obvious what is here in the text. The flood could not fix what was wrong. Because what was wrong was not out there. What was wrong was right in here. See, the problem was not external for Noah and his family. The problems were right in the depths of their hearts. And no flood was ever going to fix that. And as the Israelites are marching towards Canaan, they are reminded of that stark reality. And it's a good reminder for us See, we are a people, we're a culture that is constantly looking for the thing out there that's going to fix whatever is making us unhappy, right? If we simply elect the right person, or if everybody got educated in the right way, or if everybody ate the same way, or if, if, or if we just passed the right laws, oh, Pastor Paul, that would really transform our culture. If we're involved in this organization or this cause, or, you know what, if you just read this book, this one book, of all the millions of books ever written, it will transform your life, right? We, 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 that's just who we are as humans. We're, we gravitate to things out there that we think will fix the things that are in here. As useful as all those things are and valid in their own context, one of the great lessons of Genesis chapter 9 and chapter 10 is that's not going to cut it. 
You can start over with humanity all you want. But the biggest problem with humanity is what? Humanity. The biggest problem with us is me. The biggest problem with you is you. You get the idea, right? This passage is pointing us towards another solution. And we're going to get there, but first we're going to number two. Second lesson on sin we want to learn here. We are never safe from sin's seductions. Now look at verse 20 for a second. When it says that Noah began to be a man of the soil, the language kind of implies, and there's a bunch of debate among the commentators about this, that, that Noah was possibly like the first vine dresser, the first wine grower, the first, first person who planted vineyards. In fact, that region that, that Noah's Ark ultimately landed in modern-day Armenia um, is, in fact, research shows this is where grapes that produce wine were first produced. And there's all sorts of debate about this. But what's, what's clear is that Noah, in his pioneering work of this effort and in his effort to enjoy the fruits of his labors and of his creation, it says, got drunk. Now, understand something about, about the word here and about this idea. This is, not, this, is like, this is not Noah got buzzed, right? Or Noah was .001 over the breathalyzer limit, okay? This was a drunken stupor. This was Noah drunk out of his mind. This was Noah with no clothes on. This was Noah coming out of the tent telling everybody that somebody owed him money. All right, you get the idea here? Okay, this is a spectacle. It is an embarrassment. This is not enjoying the good gifts of God. This is, he has turned the, the gifts of God into an idol. It's debauchery. And as we're going to see in a minute, this sets off a whole course, a chain, of, a chain reaction. But the thing that we have to take note of here right now is how do we make sense of this in light of what chapter 6 tells us about Noah? What does it say about Noah in chapter 6? What does Moses say? He's a man, righteous man. He's a blameless man. Not only that, he's a man who walked with God. Now, what's extraordinary about that statement is that Moses was writing that description of Noah hundreds of years later, even after he knew what, Mo- what Noah had done. And that can sometimes befuddle us. We, we don't know what to do with this. It's, is he a righteous man? Is he an unrighteous man? And, and part of what the Bible does to our modern-day categories of anthropology and the nature of man, it totally reorients them according to God's economy. And, and here's, I think, an observation we can make about what is happening here. Even as Christians... As Christians, born-again Christians, you might have walked with Jesus your whole life, raised in a, in a moral home, raised in a great family, went to the right schools. Whatever your background, you and I, even if the Holy Spirit indwells us, we have great capacity not only for righteousness, but for sin and evil as well. And that is just a, a hard thing to come to terms with because we don't do well with, with dual categories like that. I want to know, Pastor Paul, is he good or is he bad? Is he sinful? Is he evil? Or is he righteous? Which one? He's a man after God's own heart, chapter 6 says, who at the same time, just like you and me, carries in his own heart the great capacity to fail and to fail catastrophically. 
See, when we went through Genesis 1 and 2, remember what Ray Ortland told us about marriage. He said, every marriage is five minutes away from disaster. And in a way, that's true. Got together with a, with a group of guys this week, and we're reading the book Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. And it's a book about those in spiritual leadership, which could encompass almost anyone you're leading in whatever context, in the home or at work or with your kids or community group or a women's Bible study, but whatever the context, he's talking about the dangers of spiritual leadership. And here is the danger, Tripp says. The danger is that spiritual leaders are leading people who are sinful and need their own growth and sanctification. While at the same time, they are being led by someone, you or me, who are sinful and in need and in the middle of our own sanctification. And unless we acknowledge that reality, pride and isolation and domineering leadership and a whole host of other things will deceive us about who we really are. Interestingly, as we were having this discussion about this book, we flipped on the back and looked at the endorsements that were written there. The book was written seven, eight years ago. Strikingly, of the five endorsements there, three of the men who had endorsed that book themselves had undergone catastrophic moral or leadership failure. And we look at that and we are shocked, right? We don't have a category. We don't know what to do with this. But yet, maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe what the real lesson is is to listen to what God's word says to us, this side of heaven. God's word says, Timothy, watch not just your doctrine closely, but what? Watch your life. We hear the warnings of scripture to take heed lest we fall. Take care. See, one of the things that we have to to bring to bear, even as believers, is that we are never so righteous, so mature, so faithful that you and I cannot make catastrophic, devastating, sinful choices. We're never past that place, this side of heaven. And that's just a, it's a sobering reality. See, and I think one of the things that deceives us sometimes is we think we're, we were living at peace, right? We have our home, we have our job, our life, our family, our kids, our job, our neighbors, our hobbies, our recreation. We are settled in, and we forget something very important. That's not the right metaphor for who we are in this life. Scripture tells us that we are sojourners and strangers. The, the Scriptures tell us that we, are, that we are merely guest ambassadors. This is our temporary home. And as such, we are in a literal, spiritual state of war for our soul. It tells us, Peter does, that, that Satan is prowling around, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to conquer and to devour. Guys, Satan would just love if some of you, he may not have your soul, but he'd love it if you destroyed your marriage, destroyed your kids, destroyed your life, brought shame and disrepute on the name of Christ. And one of the great lessons of this, it's a sobering lesson. We are never safe from sin's seductions. We have to be constantly on guard against temptation. Now, I want to mention one particular temptation, 
And I don't think I'm reaching to talk about this temptation because it's the very one mentioned in this text. Now, growing up, you might have heard a a sermon in your very conservative fundamentalist church about the evils of what? Alcohol, right? The evils of alcohol from this text. And so, of course, we're much more sophisticated than this, right? We come to a text like this and we say, oh, Pastor Paul, we are way past that, right? We know the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We know that, that alcohol, is there's nothing inherently evil. It's, it's a gift of God to be enjoyed. We know that alcohol points us to eternal joy. Somehow, some way in the book of Revelation, it says we're going to be drinking wine in heaven. We have freedom in Christ, don't you know, Pastor Paul? And I, to all that, you know what I would say? 100% agree. You're not going to find any prohibitions against alcohol in our membership covenant. That's not going to be a part of our culture, regardless of what your particular background or my particular background would be. It's something we think Christians have great freedom and liberty in. Yet. You knew that was coming, right? Yet. There's something we need to learn here. See, all those things, those affirmations that I just said... That's not what the text is about. See, the text is important for helping us to put our finger on the difference between holiness and legalism. You see, we are so, we are so quick in an antinomian or anti-law environment to, to, to identify anything that puts a, a restriction or a parameter or any sort of wisdom or stop sign or caution light to bear. We are very quick to say, Oh, no, no, See, that's legalism. See, you're just, you're just bringing that law thing on me. That's, that's judgment. But see, again, this is why it's so important that we bring the template of Scripture to bear. You see, what this text shows us is just as much as there is a wrong way to abstain from alcohol, and some of you are reacting against that. You're reacting against the judgmentalism, the legalism. Is it not just abundantly clear? There is also a super wrong way to imbibe. See, when we build our lives around something, whether it's alcohol or something else, whether we, whenever we boast in something, whether we, we, we take great opportunity to boast in our liberties at the expense of all else, we're being foolish. Paul, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians six twelve, And let me just tell you, this verse, just it pierced my heart this week because this is me. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but guess what? Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. You see, oftentimes the issue is not is it right or is it wrong. That's not the issue. Sometimes the, wrong, the, the, the issue, is it wise or is it foolish? Is it helpful or is it hurtful? And see, this is something I think as a category we need to bring to all of the areas of our life. What we eat, what we drink, our hobbies, our relationships, sometimes our interests, sometimes we just bring a very kind of um, arbitrary category. It's either, it's either right or it's wrong. No, no, Scripture doesn't, doesn't, there's some things in Scripture that are very clear, right and wrong, obviously. But where we get tripped up as believers, where we are seduced by sin, 
is when we no longer bring a heart of faith and wisdom to all these things to say, God, this is yours. Now, how do you want me to use it? God, this area belongs to you. You're Lord over it. It's not about my freedom. Lord, it's about your lordship. So God, give me, give me a heart of faith. Give me a heart of wisdom. Give me a heart of grace. Now, I'm, I'm quoting somebody else on this. But all these things I mentioned, they're good things. But when you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing, it becomes a terrible thing. It becomes a tyranny. It becomes an idol. And we know idols will always disappoint. So this is a a principle. This is something this text points us to. That we are never safe from sin's deduction, so we must be wise. We must be on guard. We must be careful. We must be accountable. We must be submissive to every aspect of our lives. That's number two. Number three. We've got one more piece of bad news before we get to good news. It'll just give you a heads up, okay? Number three. Sin is seriously systemic. Now, there's no small disagreement about what in the world is going on with Ham. Do you notice how we've conveniently been, like, skirting that for right now? Okay. And let me just say, the commentators are all over the place. Because clearly, Ham must have done something really bad, right, to be have him and his descendants cursed or prophesied against by Noah. This must have been something particularly wicked. And in fact, some will say that the Hebrew here in the original language alludes to some sort of sexual impropriety, some sort of perversion, some sort of, and I won't give you here all the suggestions the commentators list, right? And to all that, I would simply say maybe. It's, it's possible, of course, but I don't think that's the main problem. I think if it was the main thing, then, no, I mean, let's be honest, Moses is not shy about telling us a lot of other dirt, right? I mean, wh- wh- why stop here? I mean, wait till we get to Genesis 37. Some of you are going to blush, right? And keep your kids home and all those sorts of things. So I, I, don't, think, I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I don't think that's the main problem. But I think that we, we get a sense of what is going on and the seriousness of this by the fact that Moses contrasts the actions of Shem and Japheth against their brother Ham. Now, one of the things that you need to know in that in the Old Testament, any time nakedness is mentioned outside of the marriage covenant, it always involves God's judgment, Always. In, in, in a culture like I, ours, where we are, where, where nakedness is a sign of freedom and glory, that is that, but in God's economy, in God's design, anytime we see this in the Old Testament, there's always judgment involved. And what we see here with Shem and Japheth is their response to Noah's nakedness. It's, his, it's their response to his brokenness. Whatever has happened here, and we'll get to that, their impulse is to be discreet. Their impulse is to cover. Their impulse is to be humble. They are seeking to undo whatever it is that Ham has done to Noah. And I think, essentially, Ham's sin is this. He took great delight 
in his father's failure. See, he, he exposed his father not just physically, but he expo- exploited and exposed his father spiritually. In today's verbiage, he took a video and posted it on YouTube, right? He gloated over his father's failure. He took pleasure in his father's failure. He, he bragged about his father's failure. He told everybody else about his father's failure. Now, we don't know why Ham did this. Maybe, maybe Ham had daddy issues, right? Maybe Ham had some deep bitterness against Noah. Maybe Noah made him sleep on the top bunk in the ark. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what was going on. Regardless, here is what I think we can say about Ham. This is what Calvin said, as Calvin can only say it. What do we have here with Ham? He is a son with a wicked, perverse, and corrupt disposition, taking pleasure in his father's shame and seeking to expose it. I think that's about right. There was no propriety. There was only boasting. And guys, there is, there is a, there's a little, just a side nugget. Just, this, isn't, this isn't the main point of the text. Just a little side nugget. There is a real model here for care for people. See, everybody we know will display their brokenness to us at some point in their life. And we all have one of two postures we can take. There's the posture of Ham of like, I told you. I just knew it. I knew that was going to happen. There's the posture of, of, at least I didn't do that. Maybe I did this, but at least I didn't do that. Maybe there's judgment. Maybe there's inward gloating. I don't know. But Shem and Japheth give us a different path, a different posture. It's one of humility. It's one of love covering over a multitude of sins. They're not excusing their father's wanton behavior. They're not excusing the shame that's been brought upon the family. But they're seeking, they're, they're moving towards him, not away from him. And here it tells us that as a result of the actions of the two sets of brothers, now this is what's interesting. It says, Noah blesses two sons and curses the other, Ham. Now, interesting, probably, it, it's probably not a curse. It's probably more like a prophecy. In other words, there was clearly something in Ham's line. Ham's sons, he had five sons, one, the youngest of which was Canaan. There was some sort of disposition that Noah was able to detect was able to see and utter this prophecy from the Lord, the younger will serve these two. Now, what does all this have to do with the systemic nature of sin? Here's what's fascinating, for Oaks, about this passage and about this family. All of this is happening, in a proverbial sense, under one roof. Isn't that fascinating? On one hand, there is such promise There is such righteousness. There is such faith. But then over here, from the same loins of Noah, is someone who is so unfaithful, so wanton in their behavior. And and, and we have a hard time wrapping our minds around this. And we say things like, what did I do? Or how did I go wrong? Or, or, God, I, I... are you cursing me because of the behavior of someone in my family? What have I done to deserve this or bring this on? And one of the things that we have to remember as we look at this passage, okay, is that 
both sin and righteousness in a family are systemic. There can be great covenantal blessings that come from the family, amazing covenantal blessings. Children and marriage and protection, and it's the building block of culture, and that is all by the grace of God. While at the same time, the family can be a place of great hurt and of great pain, and Noah's shame in some way systemically passed down to his own children. Now, this should be a cautionary tale for us, okay? And here's the cautionary tale. We live in an evangelical culture that absolutely worships the family. And if there's any aspect of our families that we worship most is that we want our what? We want our family to be safe. We want our families to be secure. So we'll build our lives around them. We'll prioritize them. We will invest inordinate and extraordinary amounts of money in them. But one of the things that the text very clearly, clearly points us to, and here it is, and this is going to be hard for some of us, not even the family can save us. Not even the family can save us. See, isn't it interesting that when we go to heaven, there will no longer be the biological family. We will only be a spiritual family in Christ. Because as Katie Hughes has said many times, the church is God's forever family. See, Noah, I mean, just think about the high hopes that Noah had coming out of that ark with those seven people. You know, eight people, that's the perfect size for a homeschool co-op, isn't it? And I say this as a, as a homeschooler, okay? This is a perfect place for family worship. This is the perfect place where everything can be pristine and we protect our kids from the evils of the outside culture. This can be where, I mean, it's noetic and it's pure and, 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 and the family is this beacon on a hill, except there's one problem with that, right? There's one thing that Noah brought along with him, along with his family, and what is that? It's his sin. You see, sin resides in the hearts of even those in our families. And so they will disappoint us, and they will come up short, which is one of the reasons that God points us to this thing we call the family of God. You've been hearing a lot about that this morning. See, guys, it's my firm conviction, and I believe this with all my heart, in order for your family to be in a position of flourishing, in order for your family to be a great source of blessing, it will not do if the family is an end to itself. See, our families have to be embedded in a larger family, and we call that the church. Now, you may subject and say, well, Pastor Paul, well, the, the church is full of sin, isn't it? Of course, of course. But that's why we need a bunch of us. That's why we need mutual accountability. That's why we have a community of believers. Parents, your kids need some people besides you as a voice of influence in their life. You're cutting them off from the grace of God when you're cutting them off from the body of Christ. There's a ton of ways, as 21st century American parents, we think we're blessing our kids. Oh, we're, 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 our kids are traveling the world. Our kids are playing sports. Our kids are, are traveling every weekend. Our kids are going to academic competitions, and we think that's a blessing. Guys, we're cursing our children when we have not embedded their life, their family life, 
in the family life of God. See, one of the ways that we fight against the systemic nature of sin is that we entrust ourselves to the family of God. It's just the way God said. He said, it's through the church, the imperfect church, I know, but it's through the church that I'm making known my manifold wisdom. I am building my kingdom. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing you all along. You know, my friend Dave Harvey used to, to minister here. You say this, and I say it all the time now. He says, the question is, is not are you focused on your family? All of us are, right? The question is, what are you focusing your family on? I think that's a great word. It's a great reminder for people who put so much hope there when God says, not even that, apart from my grace, will be enough. Which brings us to the last point, where God tells us what is enough. The point is simply this, while sin is ruinous, God's grace is greater. Interesting, we we quoted this passage before, Hebrews 11 tells us what about Noah? A man of incredible faith. And we, again, come up with that category, okay, Pastor Paul, I get it. I get that, like, a Christian can do terrible things and be broken in, in bad ways, but I've done bad things. I could never, I could never be called a man or a woman after God's own heart, a man of faith. How is that possible? And what the Bible shows us, this is so important, over and over and over again, the person after God's own heart is not the one who doesn't fail. The person who's after God's own heart is the one who repents and turns and trusts the Lord in the midst of their fallenness. Think about King David, murder, adultery, the worst of the worst. What does the chronicler say? A man after God's own heart. Why? Because he recognized his brokenness and turned in faith and repentance to the living God. See, there's gospel all in this text, if you just look close enough. Isn't it interesting that this genealogy that the blessing goes to Shem, and we know from the Old Testament that the Israelites claimed Shem as their father. And so clearly the the blessings of Christ are pouring out to the Israelites. But you know in the Old Testament, we never ever see where the line of Japheth is brought under the line of Shem. We, we, We never see that until we get to the New Testament. And Matthew picks it up in his genealogy, and we come to realize that Japheth represents the line of the Gentiles, the Greeks, those who have been incorporated into the body of Christ. You see, one of the things that the gospel tells us is that the gospel of God's grace knows no boundaries. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, how much money you have, what neighborhood you live in. None of that, what your family did. God's grace transcends all of that. If you don't believe me, when you read the line of Jesus in Matthew's gospel and his genealogy, there's something interesting because he's tracing the line of Jesus. And it says that 
Jesus's great, 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 great grandmother times 10. Do you know who Jesus' great, great grandmother times 10 was? A prostitute named Rahab, who was from what line? The line of Canaan, the line of Ham. What are are we being told through these genealogies, through this line of Noah? We are being reminded that ultimately all of the things of the world, the family, the gifts, it'll all disappoint. None of it will work. None of it will change hearts. It points us to something else, and that something is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came from the line, all these lines. Do you realize that? There's a little bit of all of that in Jesus' line line because Jesus and his grace know no boundaries. doesn't matter where you are, what you've done, how broken you think you are, or how distant you've drifted from God. While it's true that we can never be free from the effects of sin and that we can never, we can never take our righteousness for granted. It's also equally true that none of us have sinned so far that we can't know the grace of God. That's what we proclaim here at Four Oaks. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you know him? We would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray.